Okay. All right. Well, we're going to be in the Word of God tonight in the Old Testament, again in the book of Psalms. So I believe you'll be encouraged by it, and I believe you'll see the continuity of what we've been studying this morning in Sunday school, and this morning in service, and uh, this evening as well. But uh, I have this opening question I want to ask you. Why do we take the gospel to an unbelieving world? Why do we preach the gospel to people? Why do we preach it here from this pulpit? Why do we take it to unknown parts of the world? Why do we take it to our, our places of work? Why do we take it to our neighbors? Why? Again, I'm not expecting you to give a full response right now, but just to think about why we do that. Why we preach the gospel. I can think of one reason why. There are a lot of needs around the world, aren't there? Tons of needs. Needs everywhere. You think needs abroad. You think of third world countries where there's lack of education. Places where they don't have high-speed fans. Um, There's poverty. Places in the world where there's little to no medical care. Um, There's... for instance, I've heard missionaries tell stories. If a man is upset with his wife, the first thing he grabs is a machete and goes to work. It's an everyday thing in places of the world. Uh, there's Bible translation yet to be done. You know, guess how many Bibles or languages still need a Bible? Can you think of the number? Languages and dialects? It's close to 2,000. And there's very few projects underway at the moment. So that's, there's huge needs everywhere. There's unevangelized places where people are not willing to go. There are superficially evangelized places where people have, you know, came up, come in, evangelized, and left. So the converts there and the false converts all together are trying to figure out how they do this whole church thing. You see these happening all over the world. That's around the world, but what about here? Any problems here? The number one problem we have is everyone's been to church and everyone thinks they are okay. So you talk to someone about the gospel and what do they say? Oh yeah, I've heard all that before. It sears their conscience. Oh yeah, Christians are hypocrites. I got Jesus and all, but I don't need to go to church to uh, learn more about him. Uh, There's people following their own brand of Christianity. They leave the Bible out and they do things the way they want to do it. We see that all happening all around us. There's race wars and they're getting worse and worse. And the media is making it worse, and it's coming into the church. Uh, people dropping out of school left and right. There's unemployment, the demise of the family, the rise of homosexuality. There's sex trafficking, there's pornography, there's adultery, divorce. It's going on and on and on and on, right here on our own front door, here in the American church. So there's problems everywhere. And what do those problems do in our hearts as we see them? They drive us to compassion, don't they? They make our hearts... They do make our hearts burn. But I want to tell you something about those needs. They do drive us to compassion. But what is something that they do not do? I'm going to say something that's going to sound startling at first, but focusing on those needs doesn't drive us to biblical discipleship. And we'll see why. You may sacrifice everything you have, and go somewhere even maybe here in this country or go abroad and try to meet the needs of the needy people that you've been, we've just talked about. You might feel that heart of compassion and go to them. But eventually you're going to have to face the reality that those people probably don't care that you've done that. They don't care that you've sacrificed everything and gone to them. This is nothing new. God, speaking of his own people Israel, said this, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people 
who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. Isaiah 65. Like a quote you a uh, from a pastor in Cincinnati, he said this. I think I might need to turn this down just a tiny bit. Is that true? Okay. Not long ago, I heard a missionary say, a need will not keep you on the mission field. People will rebuke and repel you. The need is overwhelming on many fields. But that very fact can be the source of difficulty, the source of frustration. The task seems so large and the missionary seems so small. Once it's apparent that the people don't want the missionary's efforts, what's left? The answer to that question is the key to whether he keeps on going or gives up. What's left? The one, in one way or another, the only adequate answer, this pastor says, is God. God himself. That's the only thing that's left. The only one who's left. After all your efforts have been rebuked and repelled and you're frustrated, what is left? It's God. So the needs drive us to compassion, but not to biblical discipleship, ultimately. The needs don't drive us to biblical discipleship because the needs themselves are the wrong starting point. And why are they the wrong starting point? They're the wrong starting point because who do they start with? Start with man. And man himself. So what I'm trying to argue for from Scripture tonight to you is that our starting point for all our discipleship, for all of our missions, for all of our evangelism must be the person and work of the triune God himself. That must be our starting point for everything we do as a church. So tonight we're going to talk about missions to the glory of God. And one day it will be on the PowerPoint. But it's okay right now. Do you know if that's going to work? Do you see it? Okay. All right. But before we uh, jump into that, we'll talk about some definitions. Just some traditional definitions of how we're uh, defining evangelism, discipleship, that kind of thing. Evangelism is simply proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of who Christ is and what he's done. And ultimately, that's not an end in itself, is it? We're trying to make disciples. And what's a disciple? A follower of Christ, making followers of Christ, people who follow Jesus with their whole lives, take up their own cross and follow him. And then missions, again, from a traditional definition, and I believe from a biblical definition, is doing that same thing, evangelizing, discipling, in a foreign context, being sent out of your local church to go do that somewhere else. And that would be missions. You're being sent out. So those are some definitions up front. And already you can probably tell this is not just going to be a message about missions. It's going to be much more than that. And I also want to talk about the glory of God for a minute. When we talk about the glory of God, we can think about it in two ways. One way is his intrinsic glory. And another way to think about it is his ascribed glory. And what's the difference between those two? Well, uh, think about a precious gem that's in the earth somewhere. When does that gem become valuable? It's already valuable, isn't it? What about if no one's ever discovered it? It's still buried in the earth. Still perfectly valuable, isn't it? Now when we unearth it, people see it, it's cleaned up, things are chiseled away from it, the dross is cleared away, and you see it for what it is, that's ascribed glory. People say, wow, look at that. So we need to think about that in terms of the glory of God, because he has perfect intrinsic glory all by himself. The sum of, of who he is and what he's done is complete, total, 
perfection and all of his attributes. So we want to recognize his intrinsic glory, and that's going to lead us to his ascribed glory, where we recognize him for who he is and we give him the praise that he deserves because of it. So back to the Psalms. Tonight we're turning back again to the Psalms. Again, not, it wasn't planned. It's something I've been thinking about a long time. Psalm 119 is something my dad's been thinking about it for a long time. But here we are in the Psalms again tonight, and I believe you'll be encouraged. Uh, there are many types of Psalms. There's lament Psalms, where people are lamenting, sorrowful over something that happened. Uh, there's praise Psalms. There's Thanksgiving Psalms. And this church's favorite, the imprecatory Psalm, praying prayers against the wicked. But one type of Psalm that we don't talk about much is what some people call the missionary Psalm. A missionary Psalm. So let's turn to Psalm 67, and we'll see an example of just that. Psalm 67. Let's read the text. And really, this should be read as a prayer, so I'm going to have the word may at the beginning, and you'll see why. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us. May he cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us, that all the ends of the earth may fear him. And this truly is God's word. He inspired it. He handed it down through godly men of the past. And now we hold it in our hands, and we can trust what it says, and we can grow in respect to our salvation. So let's take our time to pray, and that God would apply this psalm to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us, how it instructs us, how it rebukes us, how it admonishes us, how it corrects us, and how it points us back to our only source of hope, Christ dying in our place and rising from the, from the dead. Lord, I pray that we would be renewed tonight and be refreshed by a glimpse of your glory and who you are, and that would be the motivation for everything we do in this life. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's talk just for a second about the structure of this psalm, how it's put together. It, the structure looks like uh, the, the letter X. Think of the letter X like that. Or the Greek letter key, which looks identical almost to the English letter X. So we call this a chiasm. And you can see how this works. First, in verse 1, the psalmist prays for God's grace and blessing upon Israel. And the next... This is so that Israel could be an extension of God's character and works among not just Israel, but the nations. In order that, in the middle of the psalm, that the nations would worship the one true God. And then backing out again, the nations could see God's blessings upon Israel in tangible, physical ways. So the psalmist prays that the nations would see God as the source of these blessings. So you can see how it goes in and backs right back out. So when it comes down to actually getting out there and evangelizing and making disciples, often what happens is one of two things, one of two extremes. Either we zealously engage in philanthropy, and then we say, yes, we got our gospel work done. We did our gospel work. We 
We showed the love of Jesus. Or the other extreme is we resolutely do nothing at all. And how often do you see both of those extremes happening in your own heart and the people around you who claim to be believers? So this psalm in particular has made a, a big impact on me because it give, I believe it gives us the answer to both of those problems. It gives us the answer to both of those extremes of, on the one hand, shallow evangelism, and on the other hand, apathy or lack of concern for the lost. This psalm gives us the answer to both of those problems. So, by looking at this tonight, I do not want to appeal to your guilt, which we could obviously easily do, and many people, I'm sure, have done that. And many, I'm sure, have felt guilty about not evangelizing, and I perfectly understand that. But I don't want to appeal first to your guilt. I want to appeal to glory and to God's glory. That's where we're going tonight. I want to show you what lies behind a God-centered approach to our evangelism, to our discipleship, to our missions. We're going to see it in two phrases here in the psalm. Summarizing the psalm with two phrases, that is God's glory and our responsibility. God's glory we'll see in verses 3 through 5. And again, because this is a chiastic psalm, or because it, the core idea is right there in the middle of the psalm, we're going to actually start in the middle, doing something a little different, and we're going to work our way back out. So we're going to start right here in the middle of the psalm. See first God's glory in verses 3 through 5. It says, Verse 3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, if you look at that psalm, how many times does he repeat that, that prayer for the nations to worship God? In some form or fashion, how many times is it repeated? Look down at your text. You see it about five times, don't you? over and over and over again, re repeating this prayer. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you over and over and over again. There's something, there might be something to this, huh? This must be what he's driving at because he keeps repeating it over and over and over again for worship. And in particular, God's aim in missions is his own glorification. That's God's ultimate aim and all, everything we do, but in particular our evangelism, discipleship, missions, is his own glorification. That is his goal. And what we're going to try to do today is align ourselves with that goal. So another way of putting that is that we tell people about our triune God. We tell people about what he's done simply for the fact because he is worth knowing about. He's worth knowing about. There are two books that really expound this psalm from, from preachers, from present-day preachers. One you may have heard of, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Anyone heard of that book? If you have read anything by John Piper, then you've already read this book. Just think about anything you've read by John Piper and put the word missions in it, and you have this book. But it's an extremely great book. And if something I'm saying tonight sounds familiar, it's probably because you read it in here. But he wrote this in 1993. But I read that several years ago. Last year, I was given this book, A Vision for Missions, by a guy named Tom Wells. He's a pastor in Cincinnati. Um, he wrote this in 1985, about eight years before Piper wrote his book. And I thought for a second, wait a minute. This sounds exactly like Piper. But I looked at the date, and sure enough, it's written before Piper wrote his book. So I thought, okay, so he didn't plagiarize. They didn't plagiarize each other. There must be something to what they're saying. They must have gotten this from... The Word of God, and in particular, Psalm 67. 
So here's how Wells put it in his thesis of his book. He says, God is worthy to be known and proclaimed for who he is. There is nothing that could be more useful for Christians to realize. God is worthy to be known and proclaimed for who he is. And here's how Piper put it. You've heard this statement, I'm sure, in the past. It's even on our church website. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Why? Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, will missions still be around? It'll be done. Missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So this is a heavy message for us to accept. If we've been steeped in our own entertainment, if we've been steeped in our own way of thinking, if we've been neglecting the word of God, this message will hit us hard. This is something we have to consider, and we have to look at the scripture to find out. So I'll ask the question up front. Is God's glory really the goal of everything? Is it? Is it really the goal of everything that we do? All right, I'm going to ask you to put on your seatbelt because I'm going to break a rule of homiletics, and we're going to read several cross-references, okay? But I'm on the board. Don't even try to turn the pages because you would not be able to do it fast enough, even if you had a, a, your thumb on your, your, your cell phone. So let's, let's look at these on the screen. Is God's glory really the goal of everything? And yes, it is, and we'll see why. God created us for his own glory. He created us for his own glory. Isaiah 43, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. God chose Israel for his own glory. Isaiah 49, you are my servant Israel and whom I will show my glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his own glory. Psalm 106, our fathers in Egypt didn't understand your wonders. They didn't remember your abundant kindnesses, but they rebelled at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them. Why? For the sake of his name, that they might know his power. When Israel asked for a human king in 1 Samuel, God did not cast them away for his own glory. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. God would restore Israel from exile for his own glory. Ezekiel 36 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you and their sight. Keeps going. He's predestined us for his own glory. Ephesians 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. And it doesn't stop. We keep on going. God forgives sin for his own glory. Isaiah 43. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for 
my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Our good works are for God's own glory. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our service is for God's glory. The spiritual gifts that he's given to his church. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Whatever we do, we do for God's own glory. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, to all to the glory of God. Whatever God does, he does for his own glory. Do you still have your seatbelts on? Whatever he does, he does for his own glory. Look at all these repeated phrases in Isaiah 48. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. And then God is directing everything in the entire universe to magnify his glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And Jesus is ultimately coming back for his own glory. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to do what? Be glorified in his saints on that day. And what? To be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Okay, now we can take a breath. Take your seatbelts off for a moment. Is God's glory really the goal of everything in this earth and everything in the universe? Yes, it truly is the goal of everything. And I think I'm preaching to the choir at this point. But as you know, it's going to turn around on us eventually. So hold on. What blinds us to God's glory? What's the number one problem that blinds us to God's glory? Because it's so apparent in Scripture. It's all over. We could have read many, many more passages. But why are we blind so many times to God's glory? Sin and Satan would be the short answer. Sin and Satan would be the short answer. How does the Bible describe the nations outside of Israel before they come to know Christ, before they become be part of God's people? How does it describe them? It describes them as in darkness. It describes them as having no hope without God in the world, engaged in evil deeds, hostile in mind. It describes them as by their very nature and us with them, by our very nature and by our own choice, as complete sinners. As sinners, what do we do? We make our primary goal what? Our own glory. And that's what happens. We fall into sin, and ultimately, our own desire for glory, for our own glory, crowds out what? God's glory. The very reason for which God put us on this earth has been crowded out by our own pursuit of our own glory. So turn to 2 Corinthians very briefly. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 4. So actually starting in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And what does it say about the people who are perishing? In whose case? The God of this world. And who's that? He's talking about Satan. What has he done? 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. This is a familiar phrase. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why, does he, why has he done that? What is he trying to prevent them from seeing? Why has he blinded their eyes? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's trying to veil us from the glory of God. Our sin seeks to veil us from the glory of God so that we cannot see it clearly. This is why we're so often blind to the very reason for which God put us on this earth. So do we have any hope? Do we have any hope to see, the God's, to see God's glory clearly? We do. Look at verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's the solution. The highest form of rebellion that we can commit against God is by trying to take that thing which only rightfully belongs to him, and that's his glory. That's the highest form of treason that we can commit as men and women. And the only way for us to stop that rebellion is for him to shine the flashlight into our hearts, shine the light of his word and of his glory and say, hey, wake up. This is who I am. And he does that through his Holy Spirit in our lives in the face of Christ, because what Christ has done. So you have the Gentiles all throughout the Old Testament sitting in darkness. And then what happens? You get to the birth narratives when Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is referred to as what? A light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. This is what Christ has done so that we would no longer be veiled to God's glory, but that we would see it clearly. So what makes God's glory What makes God's glory glorious? What makes him so glorious? We could go on and on about what makes him glorious, but look at verse 4 in particular, back to Psalm 67. What makes him glorious? I want you to think about something that happened in recent history. You remember, when, remember not very long ago when Kim Jong-il passed away? Remember when that happened? You know what the first thing in my mind was? Hey, maybe there's hope for North Korea. Maybe somehow... Things could change for those people. Just, it was a moment of optimism that I had. But as we know now, that was all in vain, and nothing's really changed. But this is talked about in Scripture. Proverbs 29 says, When the, the righteous increase, the people rejoice. What happens when a wicked man rules? People groan. When righteous people are in leadership, there's much rejoicing. When wicked rulers come in, you know what the country is like. You know what that place is like. People are groaning, people are hungry, people are thirsty, people are looking for jobs, people are, families are falling apart, families are being torn apart. So what does all this have to do with verse 4? Look back at verse 4 again. Right at the core of this prayer, for the nations to worship God, there's a key word as to why the nations should be glad and sing for joy. What's that key word? It's one little word, three letters. Four. Four. Why should the nations be glad and sing for joy? It gives us the answer. Why? Because you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Now, the word judge here does not just mean in this context to, mean, to cast judgment or to be just sitting on a judgment seat. Although many times in the Bible it does refer to that. But in this context, it's talking about the idea of God as our just ruler, as our guide. And 
the book of Judges talks about that word in, in terms of deliverance or salvation. But this is, in this case, is God is our ruler, our guide, in verse 4. Now, why is that significant? How does that make him glorious? Well, it means he is a good, loving, and self-sufficient king. He is a self-sufficient ruler of us. And what is that different to? It's different to all the false gods that the nations have been serving and worshiping. And it's different from all the false gods that we pursue after even today. So is he a king who needs his subjects? Does God need his people to serve him? As in, he won't really have a strong kingdom if his people are not serving him? Not like that at all. He says he's not served by human hands in the book of Acts, as if he needed anything. But he gives what? He gives to us life and breath and all these things. He is self-sustaining, and he not only is self-sustaining, but he sustains us. He doesn't need us as subjects. And this makes him glorious. What else makes him glorious? Instead, he's a king who actually acts on behalf of his people. Even though we're dust, as the Bible describes, he still takes notice of us. In his, in his incarnation, he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We rebelled against him, but instead of punishing us the way we deserved, he instead sacrificed himself for us, taking our place as rebels to pay for that curse of sin that we deserve to pay. He is a king who acts on behalf of his people, and that makes him glorious. So thinking about us today, in short, He's better than any false god that we follow. He's better than anything that we set up instead of God. He's better than our pornography. He's better than our selfish pleasures. He's better than our alcoholism. He's better than all these things. Our idols, they leave us or they demand punishment as soon as we stop performing. But God, he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. This makes him glorious. Our man-made idols, they have to be carried. God carries us. Our idols only condemn us and leave us guilty. But he provides us a permanent payment for our sin, where we're, we don't have any guilt. Our gods are only in one place at one time. He is everywhere at all times. Our idols are mute, deaf, and blind. They can't hear us. But God sees us. He knows what we're, what we're thinking. He knows what we go through, and he hears our every prayer. And he's always with us. And this makes him glorious. What about the pursuit of God's glory? You know what the common objection to that is? People say it makes him arrogant. Have you heard that before? Well, how could God just seek for his own glory and that only? Doesn't that make him an arrogant God? Uh, my dad and I were talking to a guy in the neighborhood back here several weeks ago. And uh, he was being very honest, very calm, wasn't being belligerent. But he was laying on the hood of his car, just talking with us. He's looking up at the sky. And he said, I just want to live for myself. I don't want to follow what God's telling me in the Word. <laughs> That's what he told us, very honestly. And he expressed what the majority of the human race is feeling and thinking and doing. So I told him, or we told him in response, well, God's, the, the purpose, the reason why you're created, the reason for existence is for God to be glorified. And that took him back. And why did it take him back? Because he's thinking, well, that's going to be, that's arrogant. He can't claim that. He can't have that kind of claim in my life. That's arrogant. So why does it sound arrogant? It sounds arrogant because we grew up thinking, right, there's no I in team. And we should share the credit. And that's how we should do because we're men and women, aren't we? 
Not, the credit don't just, doesn't just go to one of us. But let's take it a step further. If we're really honest with ourselves, this idea of God's pursuit of his own glory and everything rubs us the wrong way because it doesn't give us any of the credit. It doesn't give us any of the credit at all. But we need to talk about why it's not arrogant. And Jonathan Edwards said it perfectly. He said, God had respect to himself as his last and highest end in this work. And yes, this is what we've been talking about this whole time. Now, why? Because he is worthy in himself to be so. Why? Being infinitely the greatest and best of all things. All things else with regard to worthiness, importance, excellence, things that we think are good on this earth, things that people we'd say are, are skillful, all these things, they're perfectly as nothing in comparison with him. So it's not arrogant for God to have that, his own glory as his own name because he is infinitely worthy of it. So for me to stand up here and say, yes, all the glory should go to me would be crazy because I can't sustain life. I didn't create life. I don't sustain my own life. I don't even, I can't provide ultimately for my needs. Everything that we have is from God. Everything is from him. So it's not arrogant for him to say that. And it's also not arrogant because of what a vision of God's glory produces in our life. What does a vision of God's glory in our life produce? When we see God for who he is, we see him in his glory. What does that produce in our hearts? It doesn't give us any credit, but it does give us unending joy. And that's what's buried right, or plain right in the psalm, is joy, worship, exaltation, gladness, singing for joy. So God's glory and our joy are not mutually exclusive, are they, at all? They're perfectly complementary, and they belong right there together. So as we are enjoying God and giving all the credit to him, all the praise to him, we think, well, we're missing out on something. But no, we get complete, unending joy out of doing that. So this is why verse 4 says, let the nations be glad. Because we have a king. We have a new king, not like our idols of the nations. We have a king who's self-sufficient and sustains us and acts on our behalf. And not only that, but glorifying God meets our greatest need and brings the greatest fulfillment that we could possibly have. It does that because it's the very reason for which God created us, and it puts us in direct communion with the most satisfying person in the entire universe, glorifying him. St. Augustine, after he had lived an immoral life for himself, for his own glory, with prostitutes, with a child out of wedlock, all these things, after he's converted, later in his life, he could testify to this. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. That's how our hearts are. We're in constant search of fulfillment, satisfaction, but we're only going to find that in God and by glorifying him, by doing the very thing for which he put us on this earth. So I read you Tom Wells' statement earlier, and that was, God is worthy to be known and proclaimed for who he is. There's nothing else for, that's more important for Christians to realize. We've already read that, and that's what we've been proving from Scripture. But now I want to ask you, how do you know if you're ready to be a missionary? What if God called you to the mission field? How would you know if you're ready? Say, well, I need to get in shape. I need to raise support. I need to get a network of friends. I need to find a team I can go with, all these things. But how would you know if you're actually ready? 
The rest of the psalm is going to give us the answer. Not just that. How do you know if you're ready to evangelize? How do you know if you're ready to make disciples? Well, Wells had that one thesis statement, but I want to read you a second thesis statement he had in that same book. And it summarizes again perfectly what Psalm 67 is saying. It says, Those who know the most about God are the most responsible and best equipped to tell of him. Those who know the most about God are the most responsible and the best equipped to tell who he is. So to answer that question, how do we know if you're ready? If you're not captivated by the glory of God, by his work, you'll have zero to offer to the nations. You'll have zero to offer to your coworkers. You'll have zero to offer to your unbelieving family members. Nothing. If you are not caught up in a vision of who God is and what he's done and a pursuit of his worship, a pursuit of his praise, you'll have absolutely nothing to offer those unbelieving people you're seeking right now. So we've considered God's glory and missions, and now finally we're going to look at our responsibility. So I said we're backing out of the psalm. We started in the middle, verses 3 through 5. Now we're going back out to the edges because those repeat each other. Verses 1 and 2 essentially repeat verses 6 and 7. So the truth I want you to see here is that God's people are an extension of God's grace and blessings. God's people are an extension of his grace in our lives, of his blessing in our lives. Again, those who know the most about God are the most responsible and best equipped to tell of him. Anyone ever, you've been in sales, sales position. You've had to sell something on a regular basis to keep your job. <laughs> Have you ever in those situations been in a place where you were trying to sell something you didn't believe in? Or actually thought might be harmful <laughs> to the people you're selling it to. Have you been in that situation? You just really didn't believe in the product. If you haven't, you can at least put yourself in that shoes, in those shoes. What's, what's going on there? You can't offer that to those people because you don't believe it's actually going to help them. So precisely what's happening here is that if we do not have a vision of God's glory and that as the ultimate aim of everything, then we're not going to believe in our message. We're not going to have anything that's satisfying to the lost world, anything that's ultimately going to fulfill their greatest need. So that statement, it says, those who know most about God. Again, is that talking about trivial knowledge? You know how many books are in the Bible. You know how many verses are in the book of Philemon. These kind of things, is that what it's talking about? Knowing God? See, it's much deeper than that. It's talking about who have the best, people who have the best relationship with him, people who know his grace. People who know what God's like. People who have a close walk with him. Those are the people who are most responsible and best equipped to tell people about him. So let's read verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7. May God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. I want to read it this way. So that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. So this prayer for grace, grace and blessing and his face to shine on us so that God's way can be known on the earth and his salvation among the nations. In verses 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So do you see what's happening here? This channeling, God's showing grace and blessing to his people so that they can, again, show that same grace and that same blessing to the people around them. 
Again, we're most responsible if we're walking with God, we know who he is, we know the gospel, we're most responsible and best equipped to tell people about it. Those who see God's glory most clearly are the most qualified. Negatively, thinking about the opposite. Those who know little of God's glory and those who think lightly of his grace are the least equipped to tell people about him. Because, again, they have nothing to offer. If they can't offer them the God of the universe, a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, they have nothing to offer. So again, let's work back through the psalm. We look back at the background. Usually you talk about the background at the very beginning, but I saved it for later for a reason. Let's ask this question, basic question. What is Psalm 67? It's a missionary psalm. We already mentioned that, but what is it and the way it's structured? How many people are talking in this psalm? one person and who's he talking to I think he's in a public setting but ultimately this is a it's a prayer isn't it this is a prayer of the psalmist it's a prayer that the nations would find their joy and satisfaction in the one true living God this is a man of Israel a chosen person of the chosen Hebrew nation praying for the nations around him but what led up to it what led up to this prayer Look at verse 6. He has a curious phrase. You have all these things about praising and blessings. And then it says, the earth has yielded its produce. What does that mean? You could say, well, maybe there's some secret spiritual meaning to it. But I'd say, it is what it is. It is what it says. I believe it's saying that the Israelites had a great harvest that year. And they were extremely glad about it. And we might, we might not think too highly of that because we live in a more industrial technological society. But for them, that's how they survived in an agricultural society. And I do believe that this prayer was offered during the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And what that, that feast did was mark the end of the agricultural year. So here they have a great harvest, great blessing from God. And you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 34 says, You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. So again, this is a physical blessing that Israel is experiencing. Now, here's the next question. What makes this physical blessing spiritually significant? Do we have to read into this and find some special spiritual meaning now? No, but it does have a spiritual significance, and we'll talk about what it is. This psalm, if you notice the language, blessing, nations, Israel being a blessing to the nations, what does that remind you of? Something deep back in the history of the Old Testament. When God very first chose his people, what do you think it is? It's the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation and that in him, what would happen? All the families of the earth would be blessed. I believe the psalmist here remembers exactly that same covenant that God made with Abraham and now he's praying essentially the same prayer. Praying that that promise would come to fulfillment. So this is a promise that the psalmist had not forgotten. forgotten. Now he's praying to see the reality of it. Now we ask the next question. Has the psalmist's prayer been answered? Has the psalmist's prayer been answered? Have the, all the nations come and been blessed through Israel? I'm afraid not. It's not been answered. But I will say this. It started being answered. But especially one day will be fully answered. We'll see why. Did any Gentiles or nations come to know 
the one true living God, Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. Did any Gentiles come to know him in the Old Testament? Sure, a few, but not many. But this, this prayer truly begins to be answered where? At the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's made this possible. So, we do not have to force Jesus into the psalm because the Bible draws a straight line from Genesis to the Psalms to Galatians. So look at Galatians chapter 3. That this prayer is being answered as we speak, even today. It is being answered, and especially at the start of the first century when Jesus came on the scene in the flesh. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Sometimes a difficult passage to work through, but I think you'll see the main point. Galatians 3.8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So again, this is God's knowledge in the past and his promise, his plan to have Gentiles, the outside nations of, outside of Israel, to come to Christ by faith. Scripture foresaw that and preached the gospel beforehand to who? To Abraham, saying what? All the nations will be blessed in you. Again, echoing the truth of Genesis 12 all throughout those chapters to Genesis 22, that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham through the special Hebrew nation that God chose as his own possession. Galatians 3, look at verses uh, 13 through 14. Look down just a little bit. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to whom? the Gentiles, the nations, so that they would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So it started being answered. This prayer of the psalmist, all the way back in the Old Testament, has started being answered in the New Testament when Jesus came on the scene. So that's what Jesus did. And then he told his apostles to carry on the same mission. And you know the passages, Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then we read it this morning, or talked about it this morning, but Acts 1.8 when Jesus had already rose from the dead and he was about to send back to heaven, he gave the apostles this instructions right along with Matthew 28. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem with the Hebrew nation and all Judea and then go to North Samaria. But then where? To the remotest part of the earth, to the nations. It's the same promise, the same plan God fulfilling throughout the storyline of Scripture. The Gentiles coming to Christ by faith. The question for us, will you be part of God's answer to this prayer? Will you be part of God's answer to the psalmist's prayer? As Gentiles, we're not part of the Hebrew nation. We're not Jews, as far as I know, most of us in this room. We're just Gentiles who come to Christ by faith. Will we take part in God's answer to this prayer? So as God gives us grace, as he's given us grace in Christ, his complete unmerited favor that we didn't deserve, but forgiving us of our sin and showing us the light of his glory through his Holy Spirit, through the word of God, we are the most responsible now and we're the best equipped because we have the message, we have the truth of God's word and we can take it to the nations. We can take part of this prayer. Remember what it said in Isaiah 6? Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen him. I saw the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. This vision of the glory of God. Then what God asked? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. 
That was his motivation. God's own glory, God's own holiness, his character, his perfection, who he is and what he's done, that was Isaiah's motivation. That was Ezekiel's motivation. It was Jeremiah's motivation. It was Paul's motivation. It was Peter's. And it has to be ours as well. So as we wrap up, and I'll let you go because it's no longer cool in here. Does this mean that we shouldn't help people in practical ways? We talked about the needs of the world. Does this mean we shouldn't help them in those practical areas? Come on a scene, no education, no medicine, complete poverty, husband beating their wife. You walk and say, hey, God's glorious. If you don't accept the message, I'm leaving. Is that how it works? No. To be God-centered, to have his glory as our main aim, it means we're thinking the way God thinks, doesn't it? We're thinking the way that God thinks. So in fact, if we have a God-centered perspective, it will not only motivate us to aim for his glory, but as a byproduct, we'll want to meet those basic needs of people's lives, won't we? We'll want to be there for them because we're aiming at God's glory. We're aiming at an even greater end. And if that's the case, once all these quote-unquote missional fads, the social gospel fads, they're going to be gone in a few years and there'll be new ones in their place. But God's glory is unchanging. That motivation will always be there. And that will motivate us to meet those most basic needs, to translate Bibles, to give people medicine, to help families here in the U.S. who are struggling with divorce. And all these things, problems all around us are serious. But again, our ultimate end has to be the glory of God. And someone might object, well, then aren't the human needs really why we go? Because if humans didn't have any needs, then there wouldn't be any great commission, right? No, still. Tom Well said that that objection misses one point. This is the one point that it misses. The needs of sinful man, he says, could not have been the whole story. Why? The very simple fact that we didn't need to be here in the first place. God didn't need to create us. He's aiming at something much larger than us. He's aiming at his glory. And we are, have a byproduct, we get to what? Enjoy it. And have unending gladness in him. Now, I promise I am almost done. But is the work done? Is this work of bringing God's glory in the face of Christ to the nations, is it done? Did the apostles finish it? We talked this morning about how the gospel made it all the way from you know, Jerusalem over to Europe. Is it finished? They finished it in the first century. Still work to be done. There are over 6,000, not people, but unreached people groups in the world. And that's over 3 billion people who have never heard about the glory of God. And what they do know about him, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They have no idea of the power of the cross. So you know what that leaves? That leaves 10,000 people groups who have been, quote, unquote, reached. Now, what do we think about those reached groups? What do we see among those? We see superficial evangelism. We see a decline in biblical doctrine. We see immaturity in the churches. We see man-centered theology. We see man-centered ministry. So is the work done? You could start where? In this room. Start exactly where you are and fulfill this work to show God's glory to the nations and proclaim his glory to the nations. We start right where we are. We start in evangelism. There's people in our communities, people at your workplace, there's people in your family. We've been praying for people in your families every Sunday and every Wednesday. There's work to be done there. There's work to be done in counseling. Whenever someone's really going through a struggle, I'm talking about believers too, 
you be there for them. Ask them questions. You're not there to, to rail on them, but ask them questions to remind them about who God is. Often, when they're deep in the problem, you ask enough questions, what do you learn? You learn at that moment, at least, they're thinking about this big of God's glory. They're thinking about this big about who God is. They're thinking this big of the gospel. So ask questions to stir them up, show them what Scripture says about who God is, and that will be their joy. Whatever is going on in their life, their anxiety, whatever's happening, they'll find joy. They'll find unending joy in Him. And that's hard work. That takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. So we have work to do. We start right here in that work of counseling and evangelism. Discipleship. This all belong together. Don't have artificial discipleship trying to cram someone into a certain mold. But point them, point disciples to the glory of God. Point the disciples for the reason for their existence. Show them. We start right where we are. Others of us, why not go? Why not go? Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why not go? Well, if you don't go, why not pray? What does the rest of that verse say? Because the harvest is plentiful, because the laborers are few, Jesus says pray. Beseech the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest. Pray that God would send workers to do this work of showing God's glory to the nations. So we who love the glory of God, we who know his grace, we who have experienced his blessings, are to be instruments in his promise and his plan and his divine sovereignty to purchase men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And that's the hope that we have when one day we get to heaven we'll see people from all the nations. No, not everyone will go to heaven because there will be many who reject him. But there will be representatives from every people group throughout the world. And that is the work that we're called to do. That's the promise that we've been given that God will do that. And he's going to do it through our instrumentality, through us being graced and blessed through him, taking that glory to the nations. And that's our privilege. And that's our responsibility. And that's what we're best equipped to do if we know who he is. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do love you. We do love your glory. And we do want to see it more clearly. Lord, we do want to fight sin. We don't want it to cloud our judgment. We don't want it to blind us to your glory. We know that Satan is constantly at work, and our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against him and his armies. And Lord, I pray that we would see your glory clearly in the face of Christ, what Christ has done for us, dying in our place. And Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to pray that the psalm would light a fire underneath us to take your glory to the people around us, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and some of us throughout the world. I pray you'll grace, be gracious to us and bless us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the Gentiles. And I praise in Christ's name. Amen.